It's the Media Buzz Meter with Howard Kurtz. Well, I had high hopes for the final game of March Madness last night, but it was a blowout. Remember that Gonzaga had that miracle shot against UCLA over the weekend to put itself into the finals against Baylor? Within about, oh, I don't know, 90 seconds, you could see that Baylor was going to crush Gonzaga. Uh, first it was 9 nothing, then it was, I think, 16-4, uh, to 4, then 21-6 to 6 or something, and ended up being a 15-point loss. You wonder how Gonzaga could play so well in undefeated season until now, and then just get absolutely blown out. Uh, by the guys at Baylor, but it uh, wasn't a cliffhanger, but was a good season. Um, meanwhile, I've been dipping in and out of the uh, Derek Chauvin trial in Minneapolis in the George Floyd killing. And I got to say, I mean, usually in these cases where police are uh, accused of excessive force, you know, you have the police department backing up the officer uh, and you have the prosecution trying to say that the officer went too far in whatever the circumstance might be. Yesterday, you had the Minneapolis police chief testifying that Derek Chauvin uh, didn't act in accordance with department rules, that he used excessive force, that he shouldn't have had his knee on George Floyd's neck. Uh, And this follows a testimony by a sergeant, testimony by Chauvin's supervisor. I've learned over the years in covering trials never to predict what a jury may do. And in this case, only takes one juror to be a holdout and cause a mistrial. But it is hard to imagine... Uh, how the jury could vote to acquit when Chauvin's own department, his bosses, his superiors are all saying, yes, he went too far. He broke the policy. He should not have done that. That awful nine minutes and 29 seconds. We'll see how that plays out. I got a lot to get to here, so let's get down to it. Story number one. I continue to be amazed in light of the uh, continuing flap over the All-Star game about what looks like, if not a divorce or a breakup, but an estrangement between the Republican Party and big business, between the GOP and corporate America. I have a whole column on this today uh, on Fox. Talked about it a little bit yesterday. You know, originally it was just in the context of you had President Biden and the Baseball Players Union and ultimately Major League Baseball saying this Georgia election law is so terrible that we cannot possibly hold the All-Star game here. Uh, yanking it away from the city of Atlanta, and it was just announced or leaked today that the All-Star Game will be played instead in Denver. Um, But what really has developed into something that I think goes much broader and deeper than just baseball uh, is is the way in which these big corporations, Delta, Coca-Cola, and then there are all these other big banking companies and and other major brand name blue chip corporations, not only opposing the Georgia law, but opposing a similar proposal in Texas and other states where Republicans are trying to change the voting rules. Now, whether you agree or disagree, and I said yesterday that, you know, the Georgia law had been caricatured to some degree, that some of the things that even President Biden was saying about the Georgia law had earned four Pinocchios from the Washington Post, but much Um, more significant, I think, in the long run is this split, this divide, this chasm now between, you know, two forces in American life that used to be on the same side. You know, what's good for General Motors, right? Big corporate America and the, the Republican Party. So now you have Mitch McConnell saying yesterday that corporations are siding with the Democrats over Uh, The law and calling the Georgia law, the new Jim Crow and all that are trying to mislead and bully the American people. 
and he warned that there would be, quote, serious consequences if corporate America continues acting like a woke, parallel government. So that is your classic uh, warning shot over the head, uh, a brushback pitch, to use the baseball analogy. McConnell saying in a statement that corporations will invite serious consequences if they become a vehicle for far-left mobs to hijack our country from outside the constitutional order. Well, just a minute. I mean, corporations might be right, they might be wrong, but they have a right, they have a First Amendment right to speak out. Uh, And this is hardly the first time they've done it. I mean, one of the things I say in this piece is that you've seen an evolution over the last 20, 30 years where these big companies, or many of them, have decided it's in their own interest, that it's good business, for example, to be in favor of affirmative action hiring, uh, to be for gay rights. Uh, and in an era when, you know, any corporation can be held to account on social media in a much more dramatic fashion than it used to be the case, now voting rights has come into that purview as well. Now, in terms of the payback, um, I did mention on the pod yesterday uh, that one chamber of the Georgia legislature has already voted to uh, deprive Delta of a big tax break, I think worth of about $35 million on jet fuel, remains to be seen whether the full legislature will go along. Uh, Texas Governor Greg Abbott says he will not throw out the first pitch at Texas Rangers game. Uh, Quote, it is shameful that America's pastime is not only being influenced by partisan political politics, but also perpetuating false political narratives. Here is a Republican congressman from Georgia, Buddy Carter, saying America's pastime has now become a political tool for the liberal mob and called on his constituents to fight back with their pocketbooks. Um, and he wants to make Major League Baseball compensate uh, Georgia for the financial loss, which is about $100 million in tourism dollars. So now some of these other major Republican figures are siding with Donald Trump. I mean, Connell didn't go so far to say boycott baseball, but this Georgia congressman did. Um, You know, Donald Trump, as soon as MLB announced this action, put out a blistering statement and saying, you know, that not only... Should his supporters, and there are a lot of them, remember, um, 75 million votes in the election uh, to Biden's 81 million, uh, that that his supporters should boycott Major League Baseball. And then he listed all the corporations, Delta, Coca-Cola, and many others, should boycott those too. A little bit of an embarrassment for the former president because Stephen Miller, the former uh, top White House aide, went to visit him at Mar-a-Lago and, and I guess posted a picture of Trump in his office, and hidden behind uh, some other things that he has on his desk, looked very much to be a bottle of Coke. Remember, you know, Donald Trump loved Diet Coke, and he would drink, I don't know, a dozen or two dozen Diet Cokes a day. So is he going to give up that habit? I mean, what do you do, switch to Pepsi? I don't know. Um, You know, I don't think a boycott against all of these major league companies, not to mention Major League Baseball, is going to necessarily get off the ground. But it tells you something about how deep the split has become. And this is, I mean, if you've been around politics a long time, this is an historic um, estrangement, to use the word that I used earlier. Because for so many years, it was the Democrats were the party of labor and unions, back when unions mattered a lot more, at least represented a much larger slice of American workers than they do today. And the GOP was, you know, it was a country club Republican Party, uh, as typified by somebody like John Boehner when he was Speaker of the House. And, you know, look, the GOP was for the three things 
that corporate America cared most about. Cutting taxes, slashing regulations, and lessening business taxes and cutting taxes generally. As long as they did that, they had strong support. But now, even though the Republicans are still for those things in terms of smaller government, fewer taxes, less spending, and all of that, you've got the culture war issues like the Georgia voting law, like what to do about the baseball's all-star game, uh, like a lot of these other things that have, that have play an increasing role in the Republican attack on, you know, they call it far-left mobs, but it's, recently, it's actually an attack on the, on the Democratic Party and to some extent an attack on President Biden. That now counts for as much, I guess, at least in terms of political warfare, than the actual uh, question of uh, taxing and spending, which has been at the core of the GOP appeal, particularly to big business. So we'll see if there's a patching up. Uh, you know, they're still basically for the same things economically, but I, this, I don't think this is a flash in the pan. I think this is building for a long time to come. And these, these corporate executives, and particularly the big tech executives now, you know, their stocks are, are weighted very heavily in the stock market. Um, they knew what they were getting into. They knew it was risky to take on the Republican Party, and they made a judgment they didn't do this because they're noble individuals. You know, it's their job to protect their stockholders and protect their companies. They decided it was better business to lash out at the Georgia election law and other election proposals like it than to go along with the GOP. So watch that space. All right, number two, a big battle coming up now about the $2 trillion infrastructure plan. And by the way, the Republicans, um, they have, have a talking point now, only 5% of this bill and it's a hugely expensive bill, is really infrastructure. Well, what the Biden people say is, yeah, if infrastructure is just traditionally roads, tunnels, and bridges, okay. But what about mass transit? What about rail? A lot of money in here for Amtrak. What about broadband? Isn't that an infrastructure building block of the modern e-economy, e-commerce? I would say yes to all those things. But then, of course, as they did with the COVID-19 relief bill, they go even farther and they stick in a bunch of social programs like home care for seniors, um, look, I happen to think home care is a very, very viable alternative uh, to putting more and more and more people in nursing homes. But you fight that out on its own. You don't stick in, I mean, unless you want to find a way to get it passed. Anyway, the news here today is that the most important, most powerful person in Washington after the president, and no, I'm not talking about Joe Manchin, decided that the Democrats can again use this fast-track reconciliation project for a second time to push through the infrastructure bill. Her name is Elizabeth McDonough. Uh, you never heard of her. I never heard of her before, but she's the one who has to make the ruling. And she ruled against the Dems on the $15 minimum wage. Uh, in other words, they can pursue this separately, but they can't do the fast track. The significance of this, I know it makes your eyes glaze over parliamentarily speaking, is that only 50 Democratic votes are required now under the fast-track proposal. So it'll be another situation where there's zero Republican votes. McConnell and others have made clear that, that this $2 trillion thing, they don't like the corporate tax hike, and they don't like, um, they think the price tag is way, way, way too high after the $2 trillion uh, COVID economic aid package. Uh, but still... What this means is they, the Democrats have a shot of doing this. Chuck Schumer could actually get this through. On the other hand, in a 50-50 Senate, they now have to get all 50 Democratic votes, which brings me to Joe Manchin, the um, more moderate uh, senator from West Virginia. He said yesterday that he's against 
part of the White House infrastructure plan. And by the way, he knows full well that he actually any single Democratic senator could bring this down, could refuse to vote for it, and then you don't, and then fast track is irrelevant because you don't have fifty with Kamala Harris breaking the tie. So this is this is the maneuvering that goes on. The Democrats now have to get unity in their party if, in fact, they can push this through on the basis of. Uh, this fast-track reconciliation. So Manchin was on a radio station in West Virginia, and he said he doesn't like and he will not support Biden's proposal to raise the corporate tax rate from 21% to 28%. Remember, it had been 35% under Donald Trump. So that was a, um, a really significant reduction to go from 35 to 21. Biden's splitting the difference. Say, we'll take it back up to 28, not nearly as high as it was at the beginning of the Trump era, but significantly higher, and he sees that as business having to pay its fair share. Manchin says, no, no, I'll agree to take it up to 25% from 21. That's a more modest increase. And um, Manchin also said in this interview, uh, the bill basically is not going to end up that way, meaning the way it is now. If I don't get to vote on it, it's not going anywhere. So we're going to have some leverage here, and it's more than just me. There's six or seven other Democrats that feel very strongly about this. Look, ultimately, if Joe Manchin and his the, the people who ally with him in, in the Democratic Senate don't want it higher than 25%, then it's not going to be higher than 25%, and possibly the price tag will come down as well. I mean, they do have a lot of clout. If Republicans are sort of cut out of the action, then Joe Manchin becomes... Uh, a very powerful force. Meanwhile, according to Salon, uh, Bernie Sanders, uh, he was on MSNBC last night, and he says, look, Democrats shouldn't just take Joe Manchin's position for what it is. We should get out there and pressure him. Uh, He says, I have no problem. I guess I should do the Bernie voice. I have no problem with going to West Virginia. I I, I think we need a grassroots movement that makes it clear to Joe Manchin Manchin and everybody else in the U.S. Senate, including Republicans, that the progressive agenda is what the American people want. They want to raise the minimum wage to $15 an hour and so forth and so on. Okay, well, that's great. But here's the thing, Bernie. Um, The reason you need Joe Manchin and Kristen Sinema and some others who aren't in the sort of, you know, AOC, Bernie wing of the Democratic Party is they don't want to lose their seats, the ones who are up, in 2022. And if they are seen as raising taxes substantially on business, they could lose their seats. They are seen as supporting spending that is absolutely out of control and expose the deficits. They could lose their seats. Remember, in 2022, if, if there's a net gain for the Republicans of one Senate seat, then McConnell becomes majority leader again, and Bernie's not a committee chairman anymore. So while he can rail against Manchin, um, you know, Manchin's doing the best to protect his political flank, but also he does represent a wing, not the dominant wing to be sure, uh, versus the progressives in the Democratic Party. But, you know, without them, you don't have Schumer as majority leader anymore. And Bernie's shrewd enough, I think, to understand this. So he's just doing some counterpressure to try to move Manchin a little bit. Don't go anywhere. More Buzzmeter coming your way in just a moment. All right, number three, um, the Matt Gates story. Uh, hasn't been a major revelation in the last couple of days, but still you have uh, the Republican congressman from Florida under Justice Department investigation on the following allegations, which he denies. And this is leaving aside his own charges about an extortion plot, which there also seems to be evidence to support, an extortion plot against him and his dad. Under investigation... Nothing's been proven. No charges have been filed. Matt Gates under investigation for possibly having sex with a 17-year-old girl 
and paying to have her cross state lines, which is a violation of federal sex trafficking statutes. Under investigation for paying various young women for sex. Um, now, Politico has a piece, a couple of pieces actually, saying that neither Donald Trump, because Gates was a big, big Trump ally, nor anybody in the foreign president's orbit is rushing to Matt Gates's defense. Ordinarily, you'd have people going on TV saying he's being railroaded and so forth. I think Gates is kind of radioactive right now, and the, and the Trumpists don't want to take those risks. Same thing for people, big names in the conservative media. In the days since the news broke, the DOJ was looking into whether Gates had violated sex trafficking laws, says Politico. No Trump aide or family member has tweeted about the Florida congressman, nor have the, uh, the most prominent Trump surrogates. Um, the Daily Beast reported that Trump himself was monitoring the situation, but following the advice of aides to stay quiet about it. Look, if the guy is going to end up being indicted, he's going to get kicked out of Congress. You don't necessarily want to be out there saying, oh, no, 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 he's being railroaded. Operatives inside Trump world, says Politico, say the silence depends on a couple of factors. One is that Gates has always been regarded as a grenade whose pin had already been pulled. The congressman had a reputation for a wild personal lifestyle that, associates say, occasionally boarded on reckless. Some of Gates' own aides would regularly send embarrassing videos of their boss to other GOP operatives. Quote, said one former Trump campaign aide, anyone who's ever spent 10 minutes with the guy would realize he's an unserious person. Well, they used to love him. But now, interesting, this is the split between sort of the establishment Republicans, even the Trump Republicans, not necessarily the establishment, and the people in Matt Gates's district. Because there's a second political piece that says that Republicans in the heart of Trump country, which is the panhandle section of Florida, are deeply suspicious of these accusations and still back Matt Gates and still back Matt Gates. Here's Larry Hetu, an activist uh, who's such an activist he's trying to get a local bridge renamed for Trump. Quote: I believe this is nothing more than fake news. I don't believe anything coming from the mainstream media. Rep Gates has denied it all. Remember, this did all start with a couple of New York Times stories, but that story has been confirmed. I mean, there is no dispute. There is a Justice Department investigation. Now, is it being hyped by the media? Is Gates being railroaded? Uh, is our charges not going to be uh, brought after all? Remember, if charges aren't brought, I mean, I think Gates probably skates if he's got this level of popularity in his district in northern Florida. It's the old Joe Scarborough district. Um Gates is from an influential Florida political family. His father was the head of the Florida State Senate. Staunch Trump ally, which, as Politico points out, counts for a lot in that conservative stronghold. I think, you know, Trump carried that district by 30 points or a zillion points or whatever. Uh, here's a guy named John Roberts, not the uh, Supreme Court uh, Chief Justice, not the Fox News anchor. Uh, he's the chairman of the Escambia County Republican Party said he'd never condone everyone, anyone having sex with someone who's underage, but that, quote, so far I haven't heard anything concrete. And he, he decried the sinister speculation aimed at Gates and said, I don't trust anonymous sources from the New York Times. So a pretty interesting divide there between um, pro-Trump and pro-Gates Republicans in that Florida district who think the whole thing might be a media scam, even though, again... Department of Justice, this this investigation started in Bill Barr's Department of Justice, not in Merrick Garland's Department of Justice. They've inherited the investigation. But at the same time, Trump, 
uh, prominent media conservatives, uh, prominent Trump allies, staying quiet, not wanting to get too far out in front of this, even though Matt Gates had been a big ally. But, you know, to say the least, I mean, there's a CNN report that he was showing pictures of naked women to other members on the House floor. I don't know if that's true or not. Uh, didn't seem to me to be totally nailed down, but there are a lot of stories about uh, Matt Gates. All right, story number four has to do with Florida Governor Ron DeSantis. I, I did a piece on Special Report last night about this 60-minute story on uh, Governor DeSantis. I mentioned this on the podcast yesterday. It basically, uh, 60 minutes blew it. I mean, there's just no way around it. The idea of the story was that Ron DeSantis gave uh, this giant supermarket chain in Florida, Publix, which has pharmacies, the exclusive rights to distribute the vaccine in Palm Beach County uh, weeks after getting a $100,000 donation by Publix to his political action committee. Does that raise questions? Yes. Is it legitimate to question that? Yes. Although they never quite showed a link because the problem with this story is that um, DeSantis wouldn't talk to 60 Minutes. So the reporter, Sharon Alfonsi, goes to a news conference throws the questions at him, isn't this pay-to-play governor? And he gives a long defense, and they use some of it, denouncing 60 Minutes, and you don't care about the facts, but they didn't deal with the substance of his defense. They cut it out. He said, for example, he consulted with officials in Palm Beach County. DeSantis also said that other pharmacies, like CVS, had been in the program earlier. DeSantis says of the new um, outlets they reached out to, Publix was the first one that was ready to go. And most devastating, I thought, and this guy was on Fox this morning, is the Democratic mayor of Palm Beach County, a guy named Dave Kerner. He says the story is intentionally false. He said on Fox this morning that he reached out to 60 Minutes. That he spent nearly an hour talking to 60 Minutes, explaining that he, a Democrat, supports the Republican governor on the use of Publix, which is a very popular chain in Florida. Nobody's criticized the way Publix has run this. Um, and he thinks that the 60 Minutes people piece was, in, was intentionally false and that he was completely cut out of it because it didn't fit the narrative. Now, what effect is this having on the governor? National Review has a piece today saying that Ron DeSantis will enter the 2024 Republican primary, I guess presuming that Trump doesn't run again, as A, if not the frontrunner. Uh, and look, the media don't like Ron DeSantis. There have been numerous stories about how his more relaxed approach uh, to COVID-19 was a complete and total disaster for Florida, except Florida's doing pretty well now. The purpose of this piece was, you know, Florida decided uh, much earlier than other states to take care of seniors first. Obviously, there's a lot of senior citizens in the state of Florida. Many people retire there. Um, as an alternative to, you know, putting other more vulnerable groups first. Well, that was controversial, but now other states are doing the same thing. Now in many states, perhaps most states, even earlier than Biden asked, if you're over 16 and you don't have to have a pre-existing medical condition or have a frontline job or be a healthcare worker uh, and so forth, you're now eligible. It's going to take a while to get it. You're now eligible to get the vaccine. Well, Florida was there first. Um, National Review. At every turn, the accusations against DeSantis, that he's incompetent, that he's reckless, that he's corrupt, have been proven demonstrably false. Worse for his adversaries in the press, DeSantis is adept at capitalizing on their lazy antipathy toward him. He confronts them with the righteous anger that reminds voters why they adored the 45th president just without the invectives, non-sequiturs, and baggage. So basically, National Review is saying, you know, DeSantis is the guy. He's going to be really strong. And I guess if you're a Republican candidate who wants to run for president, 
Florida, 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 probably a key state. And so if that is automatically in his category, that would give him a leg up. Uh, National View closes by saying Ron DeSantis has all the right enemies and any success he enjoys moving forward is in large part attributable to their incompetent endeavors to destroy him. Well, it's a long way between now and 2024, but I think clearly he there's been a big backlash against 60 Minutes, and he's been the beneficiary of that. All right, let me talk a little bit more about COVID, number five here. Um, I've been stunned by the way that lots and lots of people I know, friends of mine, colleagues, and others, have been posting, celebrating on social media, Twitter, Facebook, you name it, that they've got the vaccine, and there are pictures of them you know, with their card, And look, I understand how happy they are, but the problem is a lot of people have been unable to get the vaccine, and it's very, very, very frustrating. I think, you know, I I like some of these people. I think it's a little tone deaf to be bragging about on social media at a time when so many people have not been able to get it, either because of problems in their state, they're not in the right category, they're not over 65, but they're not, you know, they don't have some pre-existing medical condition. So... Here's a New York Times piece that leads off by talking about a woman named Shay Fan. Uh, she felt relief. Vaccinations were on their way. Her parents got it. Her in-laws got it. Three months later, she's 36 in L.A. She's still waiting, and the joy is hers. She says, scrolling through Instagram and seeing people in Miami with no masks spraying champagne into another person's mouth while she sits in her apartment having not gotten a haircut or been in a restaurant for more than a year has made it very difficult. Quote, it's like when every friend is getting engaged before you, and you're like, oh, I'm happy for them, but when is my turn? Um, and others are quoted as saying the same thing. This leads me into a second New York Times story uh, by a reporter named Sarah Lyle, who I knew years ago. We were both based in New York, which is about the impact of the pandemic. And I can't get enough of these stories because I think it's something that all Americans can relate to. She quotes uh, New Yorker writer and author Susan Orlean is talking about the effect of the pandemic on her. Quote, I feel like I'm in quicksand. I'm just so exhausted all the time. I'm doing so much less than I normally do. I'm not traveling. I'm not entertaining. I'm just sitting in front of my computer. But I am accomplishing way less. It's like a whole new math. I have more time and fewer obligations, and yet I'm getting so much less done. Call it a late pandemic crisis of productivity of will, of enthusiasm, of purpose. Call it a bout of existential work-related NUE, NUI, sorry, uh, provoked partly by the realization that sitting in the same chair in the same room, staring at the same computer for 12 straight months and counting, has left many of us feeling like burned-out husks, dim-witted approximations of our once productive selves. What day is it? What time is it? What did we do in October? Why are we standing in front of the refrigerator staring at an old clove of garlic? Just recently, says Sarah Lyle, I found myself spent half an hour struggling to retrieve a word from the faulty memory system that has replaced my pre-pandemic brain. The word was institution, she tells us. Sometimes when I try to write a simple email, I feel like I'm just pushing disjointed words around, like peas on a plate, hoping they'll eventually coalesce into sentences. Am I excited about my daily work this month in April of 2021? I would have to say that I am not. And she goes on to quote some experts. So here's a guy named Todd Katz, uh, head of group benefits at MetLife. Malaise, burnout, depression, stress, all of those are up considerably, at least among his employees. Uh, a woman named Erin H., last name not given, uh, social media coordinator at the Midwestern University, says, I feel fried. Things take longer to get done. 
she said, in part because she doesn't want to do them. Quote, I'm out of ideas. I have zero motivation even to get to the point where I feel inspired. Uh, every time my inbox dings, I feel, feel a pang of dread. Uh, so about 700 people responded to Time's questions, you know, tell us your stories. People ranging from a pastry chef to an ICU nurse to a probation officer to a clergy person to a fast food worker. Librarians, principals, college students holed up in childhood bedrooms. One person said, honestly, weirdly, sometimes when I'm writing, I just stop and stare at the wall. This woman's a doctoral candidate in uh, clinical psychology. Another person said, I find myself falling back into deep pajamaville. Well, I have to say, first of all, like anybody who can work from home, and if you're a writer, and I put myself in this category, you know, we're very, very lucky. We didn't have to take as many risks. Uh, we're, for the most part, safe. Obviously, some people have gotten COVID regardless, whether it's from the grocery store or family members or just people on the street or if you went to any public places and you were unlucky. But I share a little bit of this. I mean, I've been lucky in that I've been able to stay very, very engaged. But I feel like there are times when I'm just kind of burned out, when I have to push myself and push myself and push myself, where I'm not getting as much done in the course of a few hours as I would ordinarily. Uh, you know, you just, you do sort of hit a wall at times. It is, um, it is frustrating. It's, you know, you're in the same room and you're in the same house and you're not seeing people who used to see. And I've been back at the uh, Fox studio on Sunday for the last couple of Sundays. It's just a whole different experience to be able to talk to people and have a, a social life and a professional life. And so I empathize with all these people feelings of depression, feelings of burnout, feelings of frustration, feeling you're not as sharp as you once was. All of this, and think about the kids who've had to learn at home. And, you know, if you're six years old or 10 years old or 12 years old, how hard that has been on them. So I wanted to share that. I think that was one of these stories that really sort of got at the heart of what many of us, not the ones who are um, having to go out and do their jobs in grocery stores and in um, hospitals and health centers and in classrooms, even those who are lucky enough to work at home, it has been a struggle, an uphill struggle at times. So I wanted to share that. Maybe you feel the same way. Thanks for listening to our podcast. You can subscribe at a whole bunch of places, including Apple iTunes and on your Amazon device. We'll see you tomorrow with more BuzzFeed. Listen to the all-new Brett Bear podcast featuring Common Ground, in-depth talks with lawmakers from opposite sides of the aisle, along with all your Brett Bear favorites like his all-star panel and much more. Available now at foxnewspodcasts.com or wherever you get your podcasts.